A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. The Prime Minister told my guest today to just shut up. The Premier of Quebec said that my guest today's comments were, quote, unacceptable. Another member of Parliament said that maybe my guest should just go back where he came from if he hates Canada so much. The President of the University of Ottawa, the school that employs my guest today, said that he deplores the disturbing things that my guest has said. My guest today was banned by Twitter. So who is my guest today? And just what has he said to earn all of these high-level condemnations? Well, his name is Amir Adaran. He's a professor of law and health policy at U of Ottawa with a PhD from Oxford in immunology. And his views are radically basic. To me, anyhow. Like, what is it that he thinks? Well, he thinks that the government fucked up the vaccine rollout. Duh. He thinks that Quebec's Bill 21, which just got a Muslim woman fired from her teaching job because she wears a hijab, well, he thinks it's racist. Duh. He's been saying basic shit like that for a while. In 2007, he got his hands on documents through access to information, which revealed that during the war in Afghanistan, Canadian forces were transferring detainees to the Afghan military who then tortured these prisoners for information. Adaran said that our guys knew that that was going to happen, and that's why they did it. He said that Canada wanted Afghan prisoners to be tortured, and he said that for that, they should be ashamed. And it turns out he was right. So, like I said, basic stuff. 
basic stuff about climate policy, indigenous rights, AIDS treatment in Africa. And in saying these things, he has a way of really pissing people off. You know, there's this pattern with Amir Adaran where he says true things very bluntly and very publicly and maybe a little bit before we're ready to hear them. And then some people lose their minds about it and take shots at him. And then as time goes on, it it becomes increasingly clear that what he said was just plainly true. Sometimes there's high demand for his takes and you'll see him all over the media. Other times he goes too far or so it's thought and he disappears for a while. He's been going in and out of style, but he's guaranteed to raise a smile. No guarantee. Professor Amir Adaran, wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Graydon Lang, Brent McGuire, Emily Carlstrom, Arun Raghavan, Maeve Sharkey, Sherry Shrives, Leah Millard, and Crystal. Hi, I'm Crystal Luxmore. I'm a beer expert living in Toronto, Ontario. I support Canada Land for centering Indigenous issues and storytellers, and because I want to see the white saviors go down hard. So I guess my first question is, what's your fucking problem? (laughs) (laughs) What is my fucking problem? Look, I... I think it's that I'm American and I came to Canada because I love Canada, despite my harsh critiques of it from time to time. And I feel it a more hopeful country than the United States. But as somebody who grew up in a different country, in a somewhat hostile environment uh, with quite a bit of racism as an Iranian kid, and then lived in other countries and worked in other countries before making my way here, I do not feel any need to be reverent. I do not feel any obligation of respecting Canadian society for the things it holds dear. I do feel an obligation as a person who is educated and who has tenure at a university, what a great gift that is, to speak the truth about what I believe. And oftentimes, guilty as charged, that's a negative truth. It isn't always. I hope you'll have seen me occasionally being positive. But I firmly believe as an American that government does deserve criticism and not reverence. And I think that animates a lot of what I do. I have a follow-up to uh, what's your fucking problem because you've spoken about so many different topics from Canadian foreign policy to public health initiatives to racism in Quebec. What makes you so smart? Well, nothing that's my doing. I mean, you know, I had a wonderful education and before that, tremendous parents who taught me to ask questions and never to be afraid of speaking my mind. And when as a teenager, I'd get into trouble, which I did, they'd back me. Now, I've had a gift of some really good education in a number of fields. I I mean, I'm a scientist who studied biomedical sciences at Berkeley, Caltech, and Oxford. Um, And I'm also a lawyer who studied that at UBC. And 
you know, that sent me to quite a tour of universities, the ones I've just mentioned, but I've also been on faculty at Harvard and Yale before coming to the University of Ottawa, where I worked on global health policy and uh, had the privilege at Harvard of being in the School of Government, surrounded by some tremendously intelligent and thoughtful people who had views on government that shaped my own. Like, I've just had a, a blessed life in this way. And to me, the moral person rather than the educated person with the degrees, if I don't use my knowledge and education in a way that tries to help the underdog or tries to bring light to the bullshit that goes on, then what am I doing? Where's my value? What role do I have in life? All right. So what makes you so smart? And then we hear Harvard, Oxford, Berkeley, Caltech, which I guess takes me to my next question. You think you're better than me? I don't. No, I just got lucky. You know, I, I had a tremendous accident of birth. I was born in California instead of Iran at a time when, uh, you know, Iran in my teenage years exploded. Um, California was a really rich place to be raised. Um, and I had opportunities in education, which I didn't have to pay for. Someone else was always there. At first, my parents writing the check, but then scholarships came through and other opportunities came through. All of that's accidents of birth, Jesse. That's not making me better than anyone else. And one experience I had in life that really, really drove that home to me was just before I started my PhD at Oxford, I felt a little concerned that I was going to this rarefied place and not seeing the real world. So what I did is I asked Oxford to defer my start date. And I went hitchhiking around the world for half a year, including to hitchhike pretty much uh, almost the whole way across Africa. I ran out of time. And I did it for very little money. And I went through some really poor areas. I went through war zones. I, I hitchhiked through Angola during the Civil War. Um, and I saw a lot of crap. Well, uh, along the way, I also ran into some really brilliant people, including one young man about my age, I was 25 at the time, named Florian Achille Biza, who I met in Brazzaville in Congo. And by any measure, Florian Achille Biza was a smarter person than me. The guy was a Renaissance man. He spoke so many languages. He had a tremendously inquisitive mind. And I was treated very well by him. He wanted to introduce me to his family. And I went along, of course, accepted the hospitality. But the whole time I was there, I had this sinking sense of guilt that, you know, I'm a guy who's hitchhiking across Africa, but at the end of my road is a PhD at Oxford. And that's not true for Florian. Accidents of birth. I want to live in a world with fewer accidents of birth. Okay, so far I've been taking the piss with you, like, partially. I mean, I was curious of your answers to all those questions. But I think we're kind of focusing in on what makes me interested. What the hell is tenure for, if not to say these things without consideration for the financial entanglements of your institution or 
because you're not somebody like me who relies on subscribers and audience size for advertising dollars, am I describing this accurately? Like, is that kind of like you've got this position, you've got the privilege by, you know, lucky accident of birth and then by the role that you've uh, earned for yourself. So you better well use it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And I'm, I'm saddened that I actually have to use it. And I'm deeply disappointed at how few professors do use it. Let me explain both those comments. I'm saddened because the business you're in, Jesse, media, journalism, is one of the most important functions in society, and it's gone down the fucking toilet in the last couple decades because of the transformations wrought by the web and social media taking money and job security away from journalism. Um, in the past, a lot of what I say or do might have been done by newsroom writers and columnists. Now I have to step up and do it because the people who are more expert and better at it than me, journalists, the real professionals, have so little latitude to do it left. That's, that's pretty saddening. It's pretty infuriating, right? I mean, I'm a piker. I'm an amateur when it comes to trying to create government accountability or to tell stories about government misfeasance. Journalists are the professionals, and my voice only occupies the space that it does because the journalist's voice has been squeezed so badly. That part of it breaks my heart. But then, then I'm disappointed with my fellow professors who have the same deal that I do. You know, the freedom to say what's on their mind, the freedom to speak up. And they don't. They don't. Many of them are just invertebrate cowards when it comes to participating in public discourse or saying the hard truths that need to be said. I think when people see somebody who's so frequently in the news or public in a critical way, they know what's right and they're excoriating those who are wrong. If it's me, given what I do for a living, the go-to response is, well, he makes money from attention. So that explains that. That can't be said about you, right? Like a tenured prof doesn't make money from attention. So I think people go to a different place with it, which is I guess he likes the attention or he enjoys being, you know, a shit disturber or something. But what you keep saying is that you have a duty to say these things. Yes. Now, that's not to say I don't enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I do enjoy being the contrarian um, who points out things that are wrong. You know, the, the story of the little boy who said the emperor has no clothes. I loved that story as a kid. And I guess I still love it as an adult. I do think the duty comes into it, Jesse. This is a time in the world when economic security for people younger than me, I'm 55, is a big uncertainty in their lives. The millennials, Gen, Gen Z, they have it bad. I have got a privilege of sitting in a tenured faculty position, which takes care of all my needs and my family's needs. And I would not be acting in accordance with my duty if I took that privilege without using it to the fullest. And that means to be 
a gadfly. That means to be a critic where society needs a spanking. I do see that as a public service. And again, this is the American in me. I am not Canadian. I do not subscribe. Well, I am Canadian. I have the citizenship, but I'm not Canadian culturally in that I don't subscribe to this point of view that government is always looking out for us and taking care of us in a benign way. Tell that to Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Tell that to people who went through this pandemic on minimum wage, working dangerous jobs and dropping dead, largely people of color in the service industry so that the rest of us could be safe. Government isn't looking out for them. And the notion harbored by Canadian society that it is, is frankly cute, and it deserves rebuttal. And so you say, well, I'm an American, and that's why I speak this way. Yet you were an academic or a student in America. While you were at Harvard, you criticized the U.S. Agency for International Development, an independent agency that provides economic development and humanitarian assistance in support of the foreign policy goals of the United States. And for doing that, you were demoted. The suggestion being that you were actually less free to speak out as an academic at Harvard because of their uh, conflicts of interest, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. That story happened. What happened there was something that I've never forgiven Harvard for, and it's always made me suspicious of Harvard ever since. It was around the year 2000, and Africans were dying in tremendous numbers of HIV AIDS. Why? Because the rich world was too stingy to buy them treatment for it. It was a treatable disease. You could take the meds and live a more or less normal life, but those meds cost money. And Africans didn't have a lot of money. I and many others at Harvard found this deplorable. And um, Jeff Sachs and I led an initiative called the Harvard Consensus on AIDS Treatment or something like that, where over 100 Harvard faculty signed a letter saying it's our consensus that the rich world owes it to Africans to purchase their drugs and make them available, and that this is going to save millions of lives, and it's, it's going to save the continent from a sort of tragedy that ought to be unbearable in the year 2000, morally. Well, we did this. We wrote the statement. It got some notice. And then it was profoundly opposed by the incoming head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, a guy named Andrew Natsios. And Natsios said, you couldn't give AIDS meds to Africans because, get a load of this, they wouldn't take the medicines on time. Why? Because Africans didn't have watches and couldn't tell the time. Well, there's more than a little subterranean racism in that utterance, isn't there? That Africans don't know how to tell the time. These medicines are taken twice a day, morning and evening. You don't need a bloody watch. The sun comes up, you take your medicine. The sun goes down, you take your medicine. I got very mad about that. And so with the head of AIDS medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, the two of us wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post condemning Mr. Natsios for this and saying that he should resign because he told this, this bullshit story about Africans being unable to tell time to Congress. And the usual penalty for lying to Congress is you lose your job, right? Well, Jesse, that caused some problems. <laughs> to say the least. USAID got in touch with Harvard and pointed out how much money Harvard got from USAID. And wouldn't it be a shame, 
if something happened to that money, unless you could shut up this troublesome Adirond fellow on the faculty. And it, yeah, I was, I was punished over that. You bet I was. I don't regret it. There's a funny coda to this story too. Um, U2 was coming through Boston around this time. And believe it or not, Jeff Sachs had a relationship with Bono. You know, so Jeff tells Bono about what just went down. And Bono on the stage at his gig gets up and says something like this. Mr. Andrew Nazi Ose, he has a curious pronunciation of the man's last name, says Africans don't know how to tell time and that's why they can't get AIDS medicines and can't get treated because they don't have watches. So here's what I want you to do, Bono says, mail watches to USAID. And his fans did. I got a plaintive phone call from a good colleague at USAID not too much later saying, hey, Amir, is there something you can do to stop the watches coming in? Our mailroom is flooded with them. When the media was looking for somebody to take a position on the government's COVID response, it seemed like you were everywhere. Amir Adaran. Amir Adaran. Amir Adaran. Amir Adaran. Amir Adaran. Amir Adaran. Then you took a position on Quebec. And this is not a truth that people are, you know, I think Overton Window is a, a concept that is invoked a lot here. The idea that somebody in the discourse saying that Quebec is just simply a white supremacist racist society for Bill 21 was something that, uh, and you know, taking it so far with your rhetoric to say that it's the Alabama of the North, everybody agrees that that's out of line or they did at the time. That's too far. We don't say that here. And it went so far as like the prime minister seeming to single you out by saying enough with the Quebec bashing. D'abord, euh, en tant que Québécois, je suis toujours désolé quand des gens essayent de, euh, de faire propager des, des déclarations chocs pour, pour irriter, pour avoir un peu de publicité. Euh, on va toujours être là pour défendre la liberté d'expression, mais je pense que euh, euh, ça va faire le Québec bashing. And your university is saying, well, he's free to say this stuff, but we disagree with him completely. And then, lo and behold... A teacher gets fired for wearing a hijab. And now it's like maybe people are actually, I don't know, uh, something has shifted. I imagine your, your position on Quebec has not necessarily shifted, but people's, people's tolerance for hearing that or appetite for hearing that may have changed. And, you know, maybe uh, suddenly that's an opinion that can be uh, ready for prime time. Uh, do you think about this stuff, about which of your takes is getting you put on a stage and which is getting you the hook off the stage? No. No, I really don't think about that much. Maybe I'm a big dummy and I should think about that more. You know, I, I'm a brown-skinned kid who experienced discrimination big time, big time when I was growing up. And I don't have a lot of patience for racists. The legal prohibition on racism exists in both official languages même en français qu'en anglais, and if Quebec doesn't like it, I don't give a shit. Because racism is wrong. And what we are seeing out of Quebec with Bill 21, what we are seeing out of Quebec with the Premier saying that there is not such a thing as systemic racism, deserves no sucker, no respect whatsoever even if by saying so, one is thought impolite. 
Does Quebec deserve any respect for their own grievance, uh, their own argument that they are the victims, uh, that uh, Quebecois are victims of prejudice, perhaps not racism, though I've, I've heard it taken to that extreme. I mean, my views on this have shifted over the years. I can really understand looking at the rest of Canada and North America and saying, yeah, no thanks. Like, we're going to fight to keep this place different. There's something to protect here and that there is a unique culture. I think I have a greater understanding and appreciation for that than I did before, which doesn't necessarily, it's not mutually independent from feeling like something like Bill 21 is just a shameful backwards policy. I agree. I agree entirely. I mean, is Quebec culture a distinct culture? Of course it is. Have the people of Quebec, the Francophone people of Quebec, been subject to prejudice in mainstream Canada? Of course they have. No question. But that does not translate into license for state-sponsored racism. And taking it to that extreme, as the current premier has done, is simply primitive. I won't put up with it. If Quebec wants my respect, it can have it in all the ways that it truly is excellent. It's excellence in the arts. It's attempt more earnestly than many other parts of Canada at social solidarity. These are tremendously admirable things about Quebec. But the fact that racial minorities are more excluded from the public sector in Quebec, the fact that we have Joyce Echequan and others literally dying, dying in healthcare in the setting that's supposed to keep them alive because of racist attitudes on the part of healthcare providers, the fact that we have Quebec's health system advertising openly for, quote, white nurses only, close quote. This is deplorable. And if that's not something that uh, you can say in polite circles in Canada, or that's not something that you can say in, in within political discourse uh, as it's practiced in Canada or on the media, you don't care. I do care. I think it should be said in the media. I think it should be said without fear or favor. That's how the media is supposed to function. Mm -hmm. But of course, there is a great deal of self-censorship among the media in Quebec and outside Quebec in discussing issues of race and inclusion. And I think that's simply wrong. I don't think history will judge it kindly. So I'm prepared to say what I think is good or bad about Quebec and if others don't like it, tant pis, basically. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Here are some things that people have said about you. Oh, this should be good. (laughs) (laughs) At jcorey282 calls you obnoxious. All right. Uh, Straight Law Cocktail calls you a petty, angry little man. At Dr. J. Wells, uh, you're an asshole who should be blocked. At Babs Butterfly 2 calls you a nut job. David Hamer says that you have been spewing hateful abuse for years. Nora Loretto, a frequent guest on this show, says, holy fuck, the current CBC has Amir Adaran on this morning. Why is he going to talk about how much of an abusive fuck he is? Uh, I I could go. Steve Rickett says you're an arrogant asshole. This is a little exercise that could certainly be done just as, uh, you know, with, with similar effect to me. And, you know, the mentions go on and on into some very virulently racist material that I won't repeat here. But, uh, do you care about this stuff when you check your mentions? Like you talked a little bit earlier about how it, it, it can be enjoyable to be the gadfly. It can be enjoyable to stir the plot, but I've become a bit more conscious in recent years as to how much conflict I've welcomed and, and pursued into my life and, and the, uh, the effect that has on wellness, if nothing else, like, do you care about this stuff? Not much, not really. I mean, some of it is jealousy for sure. You know, Nora Loretto is an outspoken commentator in her own right. And we could either choose to get along or not. Clearly, clearly we don't. Um, you know, David Hamer um, is a liberal, vociferously. He was a very fond and avid follower of mine on Twitter when I was bashing the conservatives. But when I started bashing the liberals, he changed his mind. I think he's a small-minded individual, as I think all partisans are. If you can't be a nonpartisan in a society where clearly there is not a sharp delineation between the angels and devils of politics, and that that distinction does not apply as between the conservatives and the liberals in this country, certainly, then you are somewhat limited in your intelligence and ability to process complex information, to be blunt about it. Partisans are people who choose or are unable to process complex information. Speaking of Twitter beefs, you know, we all have them, but your Twitter beef is like a beef with Twitter. You're fighting Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid it is. Why are you 
suing Twitter or threatening to sue Twitter? Can you clarify what level of entanglement and why? Well, I put out a tweet uh, at the beginning of November, sharply critical of the prime minister for the fact that the United States had just approved a vaccine for little kids for COVID, kids aged five to 11. And Health Canada couldn't say when it was going to do likewise. And in, in fact, Health Canada put out a tweet that they later, I think, deleted or corrected, saying that it would be months months before Canadian kids got this vaccine. Well, that's pretty bloody incompetent, if that's the case. So I tweeted out that this was unforgivable, and I wrote this, quote, Health Canada knew half a year ago this was coming. Trudeau should be tarred and feathered for bungling this and putting child lives in danger. I'm talking to you, Aaron O'Toole, and the Jagmeet Singh. Close quote. Mm-hmm. Twitter interpreted that as a threat of violence against the prime minister, which of course it isn't. When I tag Aaron O'Toole and, and Jagmeet Singh in the same tweet as speaking of how Trudeau should be tarred and feathered, I wasn't conjuring in my mind that Singh would hold him down in the House of Commons chamber and Toole would come rushing over with his tar and feathers. Anyone who would interpret it that way is just not well in the head, really. It's, it's obviously a metaphor, a figure of speech. Twitter took it literally. And so for a period of time, they, they banned me for life. That was very short-lived, a matter of hours before they pulled back from that position. But it juxtaposed, Jesse, with a different experience I had with Twitter about two years ago when somebody, and I don't know who, repeatedly put out on Twitter that I was a pedophile. Now, that's about the most defamatory thing you can say about a person, right? You know, to call someone a pedophile is pretty damned extreme. I'm obviously not a pedophile. And so I notified Twitter of this, and I asked them to remove the tweet, and Twitter refused twice. Twice they refused to take that tweet down. So apparently in their world, mentioning, quote, tar and feather, close quote, is a grievous offense, but baselessly calling someone a pedophile is A-OK. Now, I've written to Twitter's management, including their top lawyer about this, asking for an explanation, and I've never been given one. And so I will be considering legal steps next. I did finally get Twitter to remove the pedophile tweets, but I had to serve them a notice of libel before they did. And that's something I can do. I'm a law professor. I'm a lawyer. That's no big trick for me. But considering how much venom circulates on that platform and how few of us can do that legal work just off the side of their desk, it's egregious that this is how Twitter functions. The only times I've missed it in the month and a bit that I've been off is when there's been some interesting news about COVID that I think scientifically needs to be better understood by a broad audience. You know, I'm thinking about something you said earlier about your fellow academics lacking spine and not using their tenure for what it's intended. I mean, there is a professor who got a lot more famous than you on the issue of uh, free speech, free expression. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? 
I think little of him. I don't think he is a person who particularly cares to inform his audience. I think he wants to be adulated. He wants to be the center of his audience's attention. I don't admire his position. I don't think that his followers understand that he's not really seeking to educate them. Now, he's made tremendous business of what he does. Earlier, Jesse, you said there are those professors for whom what they say might be a payday, and that's clearly the case of Professor Peterson. I think that explains everything you need to know about him. I cherish my freedom of expression, but I also don't think it's the most important tool in my toolkit, which might be surprising to say after this discussion. I think what really gives me the power to affect things the way that I want to is my ability, after I've exercised my freedom of expression, to sue somebody. The fact that I'm a lawyer, the fact that I've done plenty of litigation for public purposes is where I feel I'm more effective. You know, freedom of expression only gets you so far as being a supplicant. You can ask for things to be different. Suing someone is different. Now you're demanding change. Mm -hmm. And if they don't want to see it on your terms, they've bloody well got to show up in a court or a tribunal and explain why. That's a very powerful tool. You know, it's, it's interesting because the practice of journalism is often uh, working really hard to find something that's different than how it's supposed to be and then telling the world. So, and then you got to, you know, meticulously document. They're doing this, but they said they'd be doing this. And you get to the finish line with that. And for all of the conception of journalists as being really cynical and, and negative and snarky, there's a hopeless idealism to it because you, you can actually kid yourself into thinking that, all right, this is what everybody needed, is that as soon as you show that something is happening that's not supposed to be happening, obviously there's some grown-ups who are going to do something about that. And it's depressing how often you get to that finish line. And there's a day when everybody says... Oh, yeah, that, that, that shouldn't be. If you're lucky, you, you know, people will actually read the story and say that. And then nothing. So the idea that you could use the courts not to get a settlement for yourself, but a settlement where you're supposed to be doing this, you're not doing it. I'm taking you to court. And th the settlement will be that you'll actually have to do it. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's it's a superpower, right? To be able to litigate against the federal government. The federal government is the biggest law firm in the country, and it has some of the dirtiest litigation tactics of any law firm. It will try to crush you. They litigate by attrition, by force, not solely by reason. Look what they've done to Cindy Blackstock in her quest for justice for indigenous children, how many years that's been strung out in the courts. When they run into a litigant who's cost insensitive, like I am, I'm not paying for my legal hours, I'm doing it myself. When they run into someone who is stubborn, who's got a notion of the right outcome and isn't very willing to bend, again, Cindy Blackstock, that kind of person, they don't know what to do. It just throws them off. And one of the sad things about Canada is this, this tradition of public service law, public service litigation, 
is in its infancy here compared to places like the United States. We don't do pro bono law in this country very seriously at all. And if, if there were more of it, um, which would require a bigger discussion about how to fund it, what the institutional supports should be from the law societies and others, well, I think we'd live in a much better country than we do. The status quo is strong. The pull to just kind of keep on keeping on is so strong in this country. It feels to me like a unique characteristic of Canada that we're kind of impervious to, I don't know, shame. I think that's right. I mean, you know, and it's wrapped up in, in certain catchphrases every Canadian will recognize, you know, tall poppy syndrome. This, this country cuts down its highest achievers or they emigrate. This country has a, a government bureaucracy that is intensely mediocre, that is only geared to producing mediocrity. Look at the pandemic. We all know who Dr. Tony Fauci is, although he's American. He's been there for what, six, seven, eight presidents, something like that. He's been in his, his, his role as the nation's top doctor on infectious disease. What do we have? Teresa Tam? Really? you know, who's scripted by the minister's office. She's not independent. At the beginning of this pandemic, the Public Health Agency of Canada was headed by a lawyer, not a scientist, not a doctor. And then you wonder why you get mediocre outcomes. The thing to understand about Canada is it is a country of beautiful and wonderful people. It is a country that in times of crisis, individuals excel in. We all rush to get our vaccine, most of us anyway, when the time came. But it's run by fools. It's run by a mediocre government and a mediocre leadership class. And that is something that I enjoy pointing out. And it's populated by people who I think don't take themselves seriously enough. I mean, for, actually, for some of the reasons that you're describing, some of the They've got Fauci. What do we have? It almost feels, I think, to a lot of Canadians that to go as hard as you go on our leaders, it's almost like writing an excoriating review of a grade three Christmas play. Like, ease up. It's, they're just kids, you know? <laughs> like, you don't have to be so mean. They're trying their best. Like, this isn't actually like the major leagues. Well... You know where that rubs me the wrong way? I'm not disagreeing with you, Jesse. I mean, I, th I think you've put your finger on something there. But here's why it rubs me the wrong way. Look at Switzerland. Now, Switzerland's what? Eight million people about the population. It's tiny. But it's as scientifically advanced as a country gets. It's not dependent on resources. It's dependent on its brains. It's extremely prosperous. It has a high level of education and social safety. It beats us in pretty much everything. No, not diversity. True, not diversity. It is a more prosperous place and one with good human security. We Canadians aren't any worse than the Swiss. Our education is just as good, possibly better, on the international metrics of these things. But we don't invest in success. We aim for mediocrity. And so it remains the case 
that were tied to our fundamental foundational mythology that we're, you know, we're a resource country. We'll dig a hole in the ground and get some rocks or oil out and that'll make us rich. We'll clear the forest and that'll make us rich. Well, there are natural limits to this. And there are reasons we shouldn't wish to live this way. That we should wish to live on our brains instead. But for that to happen, we need better brains in government. A lot better. And that comes back to your point, Jesse, that it does feel like a grade three show much too often. Professor, thank you. Thank you so much. Great discussion. Okay, that's your Canada Land. If you like this show, gift it. Canada Land Premium Gift Subscriptions. Check it out at canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter, at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced by Tristan Capicione. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Theme music is by so-called syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, you can support us or gift a premium subscription once again by going to canadaland.com slash join or just click the link in the show notes. It takes but a moment. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.